Scripture this morning is from Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you shall go. I will counsel you with eye upon you. Be not like a horse or mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is God's word. On praying specifically the Psalms, and as we do, what we will discover in this uh, passage is how to pray when you've blown it. Or we're looking this morning at penitential psalms, right? So there are six of them in the psalms that are considered to be psalms written when people have failed and failed miserably. And this is the psalm that uh, one of two that David wrote after that famed sin with Bathsheba. And so just in case you have forgotten the story or perhaps some uh, details of the story, David is on his rooftop. His armies are out at war when he looks off of his rooftop and sees Bathsheba bathing. He lusts after her. He sins for her. He brings her into his palace. He has sex with her and and she goes back. In a few weeks, she sends word that she is indeed pregnant, and he has a problem on his hands. How will he cover up this sin he has committed? And so what he does then is to go about the process of cover-up. It is a total cover-up that ensues. He then sends for Uriah, her husband. He'll bring Uriah in, and when Uriah comes in, Uriah will go in with his wife. They'll have sexual relations, and once they do, the baby will be perceived to be that of Uriah and Bathsheba. Uriah is too valiant of a man, too honorable of a warrior to do such a deed. And so he comes into the city of Jerusalem, but refuses to go into his wife, even though David, even David got him drunk, trying to get him to do so, but he refused. And so then David, not knowing anything else to do, writes Uriah's death warrant on a piece of paper, sticks it in, puts the king's seal on the envelope, sends it by Uriah himself to Joab, the commander of the army, so that Joab, the commander of the army, can uh, put Uriah at the front of battle. And so it is that Uriah dies. David thinks all is well. He uh, brings Bathsheba after the time of mourning into his palace. She becomes his wife and the baby is about to be born. But there's a little twist to this. As a matter of fact, it's a major twist. You see, David had mighty men. 
He had 30 mighty men, they were called. They uh, uh, coalesced around him before he became king. And once he became king and could marshal armies, they were the leaders of his army. These mighty men were uh, men that you and I would just stagger in front of them in their presence. Let me give you some accomplishments of David's mighty men. The chief of David's mighty men killed 800 at one time with his spear. That's the chief. Another arose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and clung to his sword. Another stood alone in the middle of a field while the Philistines attacked, and he defended the field all by himself, killing the Philistines. Three of them heard that David was thirsty. They just heard David muse over wanting a cup of water from his own well. And so they broke into the Philistines' rank, got the water, brought it to King David. Got the water, brought it to King David for him to drink. These were those men. And Uriah was one of them. The man that David is having killed is one of his 30 uh, mighty men and all of the, the, the men in his army. Secondly, Bathsheba's father is one of those mighty men. So when David sins, he sins terribly. Uh, he sins awfully. Has it ever occurred to you that when we sin, we hurt the people we love the most? We do. When we sin, we hurt the people we love the most. And so Nathan comes in, confronts David. Nathan is the prophet. And David is found out in his sin. Sometime later, it is believed that Psalm 51 was written first as a result of the sin, and Psalm 32 came later. Psalm 32 then is written in the aftermath of that awful sin of adultery and murder. My dad used to say, sin will take you farther than you intended to go. It will keep you longer than you intended to stay and cost you more than you ever intended to pay. Sin has significant consequences. So if you're sitting here this morning and uh, you're beginning to identify You've lived in, in this secret sin, and you say, I want out. What do I do? Uh, three uh, principles for praying uh, that come from Psalm 32. Number one, own your sin. Own your sin. Three words for sin are used here. Transgression is the first. If you, you'll find them all in verses uh, one and two. Transgression is the first. It means to go beyond a limit that has been set. Transgression means to go beyond a limit that has been set. The second word for uh, sin here is the word sin itself. It means to miss the mark. It is one of the most often misunderstood words to describe sin because we think we're aiming at the right goal and miss it. But this word means to miss the mark because you're aiming at the wrong goal. So transgression is to go beyond the limit. The word sin is to miss the mark because you are intentionally aiming at the wrong goal. We would think of the word rebellion to go in with that. And then the third word that we find here is iniquity. 
Iniquity is this term that refers to a lack of integrity, failure to fulfill the standard of righteousness. Probably the most famous word from Scripture on iniquity is Romans 3, 23. For all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. Those three words mean then that all of us are included in verses 1 and 2. Perhaps you sit here this morning and you are going beyond the limit, or perhaps you sit here this morning and you are intentionally going down the wrong road, but maybe that's not you at all. But all of us fall short of God's glory. All of us. And sin lurks around the corner and will trip you up at any given point. What is the opposite of owning your sin? It's hiding it. This is as old as the Garden of Eden. Look at verses 3 and 4. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. That's easy to illustrate this week, isn't it? It's been hot. This gives us insight into this nine-month 10-month period, maybe seven, eight months between the sin and the confrontation by Nathan. King David, at the least, was distracted and at the most, didn't sleep for a year. That's how he describes that year. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long, day and night. Your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Last week I went down to Caswell and um, just for a couple of days toward the end of our youth retreat and I stayed over uh, on Holden Beach with couple of folks in our church who have a place over there. So I stayed over there and I got up Friday morning to run. I thought I'll get up running. It's, I thought it's early enough. I'll beat the heat. It wasn't early enough. I hit the beach at 645. I planned a, what for me is a long run. So I was going to uh, uh, try to work out six miles that morning. And so I'd hit the beach at 645 and I thought I'll get this done. And I discovered right about uh, mile four and a half that I was running low. It was hot. The sun was to my face. The wind was to my back. When I turned, the wind was to my face. The sun was to my back. Have you ever been so cold that you get cold chills? That's how, how so hot rather, that's how hot I was. And I thought this isn't good. And I'm just going to collapse right here on the beach, and that's going to be the, the story of my life. What happened to him? He was an idiot. <laughs> Running in this weather. But my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Secret sin will do that to you. God will not forgive what you will not forsake. God will not forgive what you will not forsake. Look at verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Do you know what's interesting? I love about verse 5. All three words show up again. 
all three words for sin. I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions. So let's, let's diagnose this sin. All right, so I have a couple thick theology books, and you may not realize it, but they have thick sections just on sin, all right? Uh, The study of sin is rather thick in a theology text. So how did this go down? When David saw Bathsheba from the roof, when he saw her and he sent for her, he transgressed. He went beyond a limit that God had set, right? Your wife for you, Bathsheba for Uriah, that is the limit. So that was transgression. As she is coming over, him now knowing what he is about to do, he is in full-blown sin. He has taken his goal off of honoring God, pleasing God, and put his goal on honoring self and pleasing self, which is to have sex with her. So that is his new goal. He now has a new target for which he is aiming. He is in full-blown missing-the-mark sin And all of this feeds his iniquity, his sin nature. And your sin nature will never be satisfied. And the more you sin, the more you'll want to sin. And the more you want to sin, the more you'll sin. And the more you sin, the more you'll want to sin. And this cycle of feeding his sinful nature went on and on and on. Three questions for you. Have you ever owned the fact that you are a sinner by nature. Secondly, are you intentionally right now aiming at the wrong mark, meaning you're living in rebellion? Three, are you right now going beyond a limit that God has clearly set in your life? All right, so if we're going to pray when we've blown it, number one, own your sin. Number two, be real about temptations. Be real about your temptations. Look at verses six and seven. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Well, what is David talking about? So let me give you a little quiz. You just finished the sentence. Have you ever heard the statement, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure? So I went looking. Well, where did that come from? Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin was trying to advise people on how to handle live coals from fireplaces. I live in a house that is about 115 years old, and we have five fireplaces in our house. Four of them were coal-burning fireplaces, up and downstairs rooms, shared chimney for four fireplaces. And so the coals sometimes, having gotten hot in one fireplace, you take a shovel, put those hopefully in a pan, close the pan, carry those coals to another fireplace, and start a fire there. But evidently, let me just read his own words, wade through the old English. Here's what he said, and I quote, In the first place, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. I would advise them to take care how they suffer living coals in a full shovel, to be carried out of one room into another or up or downstairs, unless in a warming pan shut. 
For scraps of fire may fall into chinks and make no appearance until midnight. When your stairs being in flames, you may be forced, as I once was, to leap out of your windows and hazard your necks to avoid being oven roasted. (laughs) So this is a man speaking from experience. Let's do the quick thing, right? No need to move him from the shovel to the warming pan. Let's just carry them in the shovel. But then a little, little ember falls over into a crack between the floor. And at midnight, you're jumping out of the second floor window. Well, so it is with temptation, isn't it? Maybe just a little bit. Maybe I could take this shortcut. Notice how the sinner is described here. Therefore, let everyone who is what? Godly. This may be a surprise to you, but godly sinners pray. This psalm is still about blowing it. But David says, therefore, let everyone who is godly offer a prayer to you when you may be found. Godly sinners pray. Let me give you some verses. If you're taking notes, you'll want these references. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. All right, do you know what that means? That all week or at different points in the week, all of us in some way has been tempted. But your temptation is one that someone else in this room most likely has experienced. If not in this room, somewhere, somebody has been through what you're going through. Satan's number one lie is, you're the only one who deals with this. This verse says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God, I love this, God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. My brother said one time in a sermon that he preached, I heard him say this, that every temptation comes with a flashing exit sign. Every temptation comes with a flashing exit sign. Thus the phrase, way of escape. Every temptation has a way of escape. When you choose to give in to the temptation, it is because you do not take God's exit strategy out of that temptation. When David stepped out on his roof, looked down on Bathsheba's roof, roof and saw her naked body, what did he face? Look at how he describes it. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. He describes the temptation as a rush of great waters. As a matter of fact, uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, no temptation has overtaken you. Some older translations say, seized you. How did Jesus teach us to preach? Matthew, uh, pray. Matthew 6, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Matthew 26, 41, in the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Or this which God shed some light on in a family devotional time this week. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. 
All right, every time I've ever read that, I've thought, okay, I know what that means. Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come, meaning I better be careful that I don't cause someone else to stumble. And certainly that is an application. But this is a before and after verse. The before verse of it says that's the meaning. The after verse says there is a completely other meaning. And the verse serves like a hinge, and it grabs the before. Be careful. Don't cause someone else to, to sin. And it grabs the after. Well, what is the after? The after of this is that crazy stuff. If your eye offends you, do what? Pluck it out. If your hand offends you, do what? Cut it off. My dad, years ago, was in a Bible study, he said, and they were talking about this, and nobody in the room but the guy knew that he had a glass eye, and when he got to this part, he just pulled it out. I would never forget that Bible study, would you? Just pull the thing right out his eye, his head. All right, so if your eye offends you, pluck it out. What does it mean? Now let's go back and read the verse and grab the second meaning of the verse. Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. Don't be the source of your own temptation. Your eye, your hand. Well, what do you mean? Please hear me in a day when we value experience, it seems, above everything. There are some things that you never in your life need to see. You never need to lay your eyes on those things. There is no need to push yourself out there and think, I can experience this and it won't affect me. There are some things that never need to go in your mouth. There are some things that never need to be introduced into your body ever in any way. Ever. That's what this is about. We, in our culture, value experience at such a high level that we end up tempting our own selves, do we not? We end up coming, becoming our own sources of temptation. It, it gets to a point, and this is where sin begins to run its course. It gets to a point to where that nobody has to tempt you anymore. Your own addiction becomes your greatest temptation. Your own feeding of your own sinful nature in the secret place becomes your greatest temptation. So what do you do? You cut it off. You get rid of it. It means that some of you look back through your family lineage, and when you do, alcohol should never touch your lips because you see case after case after case after case, and you go, wisdom tells me, run the other direction. Run. There are others of you who have been so bound up in pornography, so bound up in sexual sin, that your smartphone needs to be just completely radically reduced. What does that do? Cuts it off. If your eye offends you, cuts it off. So, what does David say? Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. Then that begs the question, is there a time when you call out to God in temptation that he doesn't listen? 
No, there isn't that time. Well, what does this mean at a time when you may be found? God will not hide from you, but sin will hide God from you. God will not hide from you, but sin will hide God from you. God will not redeem what you will not renounce. This word offer prayer is an interesting word. Did you see that? Typically in the Psalms, it just says pray, but this says offer prayer. So when digging, what's important about this word? It's rather rare. It means to pray with judgment. It means that you judge yourself in prayer. You allow your prayer time to penetrate deep into your conscience and you ask yourself the hard questions. So be real about your temptations with God and with others. With God and with others. I want to do a little, especially for the younger people in the room, I want to do a little exercise. How many of you have known Christ as your personal Savior for at least 20 years? Stand up. If that's you, you say, I've known Christ for 20 years. Stand up. All right. So if you've known Christ less than 20 years, look around the room. Now, how many of you who are standing were tempted in some kind of way this week with sin. Sit down. That's my point. You got to be real about it. You got to be real. When I was younger, I, I just thought maybe I'd get to a point one day and it would be easier. I think I'm at the one day and it ain't easier. Be real about your temptations. Finally, finally follow God's counsel. I love this. Look at verse 9. God is speaking now. I am convinced in this psalm. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. So to counsel you with my eye upon you is the picture of a mom teaching her, her little boy, her little girl, how to walk. So what does she do? Does she have fun with that? No. All the cooing, all the talking, all the coaxing, right? All the outstretched arms to help. Now, I want to read this again. And look at verse 8. Look at all the times you shows up. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you five times. And every single time, it's singular. What? God has a personalized plan for your life. And he takes into account your weaknesses. He takes into account where you struggle. And in his personalized plan for your life, he's not ignorant of your sin struggles. And guess what he does? He counsels you with his eye upon you and you and you and you individually so as to get you from here to here. What a big God, amen? Wow. But don't be like a horse or a mule. Well, how do they work? Well, you put a bit and a bridle in their mouth and the only way you get them to do anything is to inflict pain. Oh, may that not be the way you walk with God. 
May it not be that, that the way you walk with God is when God has to, to, to discipline you constantly because you refuse to listen. You do not hear his voice. Well, what is the, the bit and bridle that God uses? Verse 3 calls them groanings. Verse 10 calls them sorrows. Groanings and sorrows, the bit and the bridle, the groanings and the sorrows that God uses to pull you back on course and you live a life from one down of groaning and sorrows to another down of groaning and sorrows. The joy is zapped out. You are dried up as with the heat of summer. And that isn't God's desire. It isn't his dream. It isn't his plan for you at all. He wants to counsel you with his eye upon you. That's what he wants to do. Well, what are this groaning and sorrows? We call it sowing and reaping. Paul spoke of it in Galatians 6. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Every single day, every hour of the day, you're sowing. Every day, we're all sowers. Every human being on the planet is sowing. If everybody's sowing, everybody's reaping. Because if you sow, you reap. So everybody's sowing, everybody's reaping, all day, every day you're sowing. You will either sow to the flesh or you will sow to the spirit. There's no in-between. There's no kind of middle field. You're either sowing to your fleshly desires or you're sowing to the spirit. You can't straddle the fence. You can't sow in one field and then sow in another field and in the one and back and forth and, and have any kind of consistency in your life. So you're sowing. We sow every day, all of us. And some of us have convinced ourselves that we're not going to reap what we sow. And that's the verse. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. So there are three rules of the harvest. Number one, you sow what you reap. You reap what you sow. All right, so I grew up in the country in Tennessee, and we grew everything we ate. And do you know what happened every time we planted corn? Corn came up. It was incredible, right? And every time we planted green beans, well, Lo and behold, there were green beans and, and uh, uh, the same with cucumbers and squash. It just, that's what went into the ground. That's what came up out of the ground. So probably three years ago. So uh, there's a holly tree past my house on the left and uh, it was then in a, a vacant lot. And so when the pumpkins, uh, we were done with our pumpkins, you know, when you leave them out too long and uh, they're impossible to pick up because they're rotten. All right, so that had happened. So I grabbed what I could and launched it over under the holly tree. Well, the very next summer, I see a vine start going up the holly tree. I had forgotten about throwing the pumpkins, totally forgotten. I never watered it. I never fertilized it. And this vine kept growing. And it kept growing of this large holly tree, probably 20 feet tall. And it, then it started growing out. And then no lie, like just in time for Halloween, this pumpkin hanging about 12 feet up in the air. Yes, it made it onto channel 13. Sometimes they hurt for news. All right, so there it is. Pumpkin just hanging in the air. Why did that happen? 
Because when you plant a pumpkin seed, what comes up? Pumpkins. It's the craziest thing, isn't it? All right, so you, you reap what you sow, rule number one. Rule number two, you reap after you sow. You reap after you sow every single time. You see, some of you, please hear me students, please hear me singles. You think, oh, in my student life, in my single life, I know this is not the life I want for me as an adult, but I'll do this now. And then when I'm married, oh, it so doesn't work that way, does it? Why? Because the stuff you sow as a single person tends to grow up into your marriage, doesn't it? The third rule, you reap more than you sow. How does that work? Have you ever seen all the seeds in a watermelon? Every single one of those could grow watermelon plants. So a kernel or two of corn, we always did three in a, in a spot when we were kids. Kind of thin out one, leave two usually, kind of down the row. And that corn comes up and all kinds of corn on it. We'd take every one of those cobs, pull the, those kernels off, and we'd have more corn. Uh, follow God's counsel. Sow to the Spirit, and you will of the Spirit reap eternal quality of life. Now, sow to the flesh, and you will from the flesh reap corruption. That means rottenness. Rottenness. Well, say, Jerry, this is kind of dismal news in a way. I have intentionally left verses 1 and 2 and the last two verses off. Why? Because they form uh, what I call uh, in teaching a very theologically, uh, theological term. I call it the Oreo effect. All right? So I've, I've not touched the Oreo cookie part, just the cream. So what is the cookie part? Let's look at verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. That word blessed means extremely happy. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. Verse 10, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O who? Righteous. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. All right, so I have a question for you. How is it that David, in this psalm, that he writes after having committed adultery with the wife of one of his mighty men and the daughter of one of his mighty men and having committed murder by having the husband of that woman killed, how could he call himself righteous? How? The only way that David could ever say in this verse, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. Obviously, it's not because of anything he had done. It is because when he confessed his sin to the Lord, in order for him to be forgiven, God redeemed what he renounced. God forgave what he brought out into the open. 
and God took his own righteousness. As a matter of fact, if you go to the passage, this is unreal. Some of you do not believe this today. You do not believe God stands ready. But if you go to the passage where Nathan confronts David, and as soon as Nathan does, David falls. Like It's like, oh, it's me. It's me. The very next word from Nathan is, the Lord has forgiven you. Just like that. Don't jump through hoops. Don't figure things out. Don't, don't uh, uh, clean up all your mess. Don't do, th- no, 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 no. As soon as the words come out of his mouth, the Lord has forgiven you. Or if you go to Isaiah 30, and I promise I'm not preaching another sermon, but if you go to Isaiah 30, all of Isaiah up to 30 is woe to Israel, woe to Edom, woe to Judah, woe to all of these countries. And then you get to Isaiah 30. Oh, verse 12, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. The Lord waits, he longs to be gracious to you. And so, so what does Isaiah 30 say you gotta do? As soon as you cry out, he'll respond. Wow. You don't have to figure it out, you just cry out and he'll respond. And so there's some of you who've never gone and looked on uh, the cross where Jesus hung, bleeding, dying, and became sin for you, that in him you might become the righteousness of God. And this morning, you need to receive his forgiveness. And you need to say, oh, Lord, I'm sorry for my sins. Forgive me. And he will. He waits for that. Then there are others of you who already know the Lord this morning, you've walked in here, you've known Christ. Many of you stood up a moment ago. The white cards are for you. You said, Jerry, what are they for? We have two crosses, one on either side. We want you to write some sin that you're done with, that the Lord is dealing with you. Just write it on that. Walk down here. There's some hammers. Take a nail. And this morning, in a symbolic way, say, I'm done. I'm done. I'll be down here. James will be down here. Adrian will be here. The crosses are on either side. Let's stand. Let's sing the song. You obey God and worship him this morning. Whatever he tells you to do, don't leave here like you came.